Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Kanya, producer here at Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad and Ian interview Frederick Karest, who is co-founder and chief operating officer of Okta. Frederick talks about how he shifted from tech to sales and then to building his own business. Join Chad and Ian as they speak with Frederick about the challenges of working in an environment of hyper growth and how to set up your company for long-term success. Stay tuned to see if Frederick looks like John McEnroe. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we're joined in studio by Frederick. Frederick, thanks for taking the time. Thanks all for having me, guys. Excited to be here. Same. So you're the co-founder and COO of Okta. When you're at a party or when you're hanging out with people and they ask, what do you do? How do you respond? What do I do? I'm, uh, I'm an enterprise software entrepreneur. Today, I run an enterprise software company called Okta. As you mentioned, it's an enterprise identity management company. So we help uh, companies uh, with their own enterprise challenges around identity. So their workforces, helping them make them more secure, more productive, easier to use all the modern tools that are out there. And then customer identity. So just making that experience with customers a lot better, websites, applications, making it a lot more seamless. Cool. I'm seeing the sign in with Okta box popping up more and more. So that's, uh, that's yeah, that's really exciting. And you're from the Bay Area, right? I'm not from the Bay Area, but I'm, I have lived here over half my life. And okay, when people cool. ask me where I'm from, I do say San Francisco. So. so before you came out here, where 
Where were you based? Uh, let's see, I was born in New York. I lived in Montreal, Toronto, London, and then went to high school in Paris. Were you doing all over the place? Family or were you just I, mean, uh, I was following my parents around. I don't think you had okay. a choice when you're, you're a kid. Yeah. Uh, my dad was an uh, international investment banker. Okay. So did that early exposure to the world of finance and business, were you excited by it? Did you just treat it as background noise or were, what was that like? Uh, you know, when I was young, I, I don't think I had any idea what my dad did. I mean, I'm sure he told us and stuff, but you know, sure. I think I went to his office one time and remembered seeing that there was a bunch of offices, but that was about it. So not necessarily at the very beginning, but um, my father was uh, in his own way an entrepreneur. He came here from France in 1974, just had a suitcase and uh, didn't speak the language and just knew he's French and knew that the capitalism and the way that people approach jobs and designing businesses was something that he wanted to do. So I guess I kind of had, all, had always seen that perspective and that certainly had something to do with the path I've chosen. Awesome. And the path you chose took you to Stanford and the Valley for college. So mm -hmm. what was that experience like? And uh, when you were at Stanford studying computer science, what was going on? Well, let's see, I was a freshman in 1994. Uh, so that's dating myself. What was going on? Well, the you know we were getting email addresses for the first time in college. The internet was starting. People had Netscape as a browser. That was what was starting, you know, just when I started in college. I started in college as a math major, um, actually. And then I was, I liked to get summer jobs, summer internships. I got a whole bunch of them. And I started looking around my first year and then <laughs> there was no math internships. Go figure. But there was a lot of computer internships. And my father put a Apple II Plus in my bedroom in 1984. So this is when it was five and a quarter inch floppy disks and didn't have enough RAM to boot itself. So you actually like needed to boot it with a different disk. I know the people on the podcast can be like, what's this guy talking about? What's a disk? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of geeks that listen, including myself. Perfect. I, I count so, myself among them. So Great. Yeah. So they will appreciate that. Hopefully. And so we'd always, and my, my, I don't think my dad had any idea what to do with the computer, but he'd seen it in the office. It was, it was starting to become something in business. And he thought, hey, this is probably a pretty good idea to put in my kids' rooms. I had a couple of siblings, so we, we messed around with the computers a lot growing up, so I knew what they were. But I was always drawn a little more to math. And uh, and then I turned around, there was no internships <laughs> for math. So I got a computer science internship and then uh, or a software, software development uh, internship. And uh, I enjoyed it. And then I became a mathematical and computational science major, which I think they still have. And then I just dropped the math and became a CS major. Awesome. And yeah. that, were you recruited by Sun Microsystems or were you, did you have your eye on that as you left? I wasn't, uh, I, I don't know that I was recruited. I knew that I wanted to work at a couple of the big, important software and technology companies in Silicon Valley while I was in school. So each summer I had uh, major internships, either three or six months even. Uh, Sun Microsystems, so I wrote a bunch of the Java development libraries there. Applied Materials, which is when they were going from the larger wafers to the smaller wafers. I started writing a bunch of robotic software there. Web TV networks as they got bought by Microsoft. So that was that was a pretty interesting, and that was all while I was in college. So by the time I graduated college, I'd already worked in a bunch of different places and seen in enterprise, right? And seen a lot of different things. Very cool. So yeah. you're, a, you have a technical background and at a certain point along the way, I think you moved into more of like a sales role, right? At Salesforce. It didn't take other... very long. <laughs> What was, I, yeah, what was that transition like? I think I wrote production code for like a year after graduating. Was it brutal or? No, it was your, fine. Yeah. I mean, I was, was I the best at it? I probably wasn't the best at it, but I was good at it. 
you know, during your time at Salesforce, you basically built the Latin America sales team and organization, right? Yeah. Salesforce was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, 2002 2000, to 2007. You got yeah. it. Exactly. You had, uh, you had my friend Teen as well oh, yeah. Yeah. on yeah. the podcast. He was great. Teen's awesome. He's a good friend of mine. He's done fantastically well. I'm very, very happy for him. He, uh, he has he, an intensity in, uh, about him, or at least that's what came oh, yeah. across during his interview. But I, I love that when people are like, they know what they're doing, why, and yeah, it's great. Oh yeah, Teen's not messing around. Yeah. <laughs> um, I used to see Teen when I was a young guy. I mean, this was like 2002. I used to see Teen walk around with like the big cups from Starbucks with like triple shots, like at all times. <laughs> the venti. Yeah, and at the time yeah. I was just like, that's weird. Like what's wrong with that guy? And now I think I take on average four to six espresso shots a day. Yeah. So I totally understand. <laughs> You're just trying to get a lot done. Yeah. Uh, I love Teen. Anyway, yeah, so I started in 2002. I basically had five jobs over five years. Well, I mean, the company went from a couple hundred people to 3,000 people, mm-hmm. went from private to public. We went from, you know, $50 million in revenue to like three quarters of a billion. I mean, a lot of things happened in five years. So when you're growing that fast, if you're getting things done and, you know, you're a good member of the team and so forth, you get opportunities. So I basically had five jobs over five years. One of them was starting building Latin American sales organization, did you work with Aaron Ross and like do all the predictable revenue stuff? And like, was that was that crazy to see that book take off afterwards? And all uh, I I know Aaron Ross. I worked with him. I mean, early on, there was all on one floor. Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty straightforward. I think when I started, we just took on a second floor of the landmark building at at One Market Street. Uh, I knew Aaron when he was there. He did a fantastic job. And then yeah, he left, and uh, he's done. He's done very very well for himself. I don't know that much about the background, the details on that. But yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of very good stories that have come out of there. I was very, very fortunate. Some awesome leadership, some great friends, a lot of great entrepreneurs like teen. So, How did being in an environment like that where there's uh, hyper growth or fast growth, how did that shift your mindset about what's possible? Because when you're in that environment, you have so many high performers and people are just getting drawn to it. Did that change your mindset about what was possible in business and, uh, and in life or... Yeah, I mean, I think when you're in that environment, first of all, it's very invigorating. Well, it could go two ways. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on how you are as a person. If it's something that you're looking to do. For a lot of people, it's totally uncomfortable, by the way. Right. So for a lot of of people, like stability, remember, people don't like change by nature, whether you're like a kid, middle-aged, old, like change is hard. No one likes change. That's, I think it's probably somehow baked in DNA, like keep it the way it is. Mm -hmm. So when you're growing that fast, by the way, happens in my company, basically everyone's interviewing for their job every year because it's the completely different job than you had six or 12 months ago. And you might or might not be qualified for it. But so it also means that for those who are doing a lot of things, there's a lot of opportunities. So it depends on kind of like what your lens is on it. It could be like very terrifying or it could be awesome. For me, it was awesome. I mean, I got to you know, Salesforce, I got to do a bunch of stuff. We, I got to, you know, start and build Latin American sales organization. I got to help them start a resale channel. I get them start an OEM channel, help them start the mobile group. We did the first M&A of a company, you know, and I was in my mid twenties. So that was great. I also uh, developed a, a lot of mentors there, people who just seen it ahead of time. And when things are going so fast, you know, you see a lot of people who have to develop quickly. They got to develop processes, people, systems quickly. Mm. And, you know, you make mistakes, but that kind of growth is, it's very exciting when you're in it. As you were transitioning out in uh, 2007 time period, uh, what's your thought process like and how'd you make the decision to make your next move? 
Yeah. Well, the company gotten very big already pretty fast. You know, I'd had a bunch of very good jobs over the years. And then I felt like there was an opportunity that was going to come around a next shift in enterprise software. And I wanted to take advantage of it. And I wanted to be on the forefront of that. And I was getting a lot of opportunities at salesforce.com, but I think I'd started like three businesses that hadn't gone that well. I started like a, uh, soda can recycling business when I was eight years old, going around the neighborhood, getting everyone soda cans, then splitting the five cents with them. I thought you were talking about while you were at Salesforce. <laughs> that yeah. would have been even. I was like, damn, you started a recycling business while you were at Salesforce. I thought it could be like the one, 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 like early on, like it was. A, yeah. And then I sold that? it to waste management for <laughs> yeah. a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> no, sadly, no, uh, that business didn't go terribly well. I started a, uh, a, a tennis racket restringing business in high school. So I got like a machine and started restringing tennis rackets. I was playing a lot of tennis in France. That didn't go terribly well. And then uh, I helped those guys start and build that high-tech consulting firm in South America in 2000 to 2002. That was going really well right until Argentina had a revolution and like froze half our assets, which was a problem. So building, I'm a builder. I like building things. I like starting companies. I like putting together teams. I like selling things. I like that, that motion. I would have had plenty of opportunities to do so at Salesforce and they were very, very good about it, but I wanted to build another company. And I also knew that there was a skill set I didn't have mm. around uh, finance and like understanding capital and how you manage capital and all those kinds of things on a business level. Sure. Which is why I ultimately I left and I went back to business school. And while I was in business school, I worked in venture capital because I wanted to see what happened on the other side of the fence. So that, you know, it's like, oh, the, you know, what's going on behind the curtain? It's just so you have an idea, if you're going to be building a company, you're going to take on venture capital. You want to go back in there and see how that works. You want to have some idea of what's going on. At you, business school and during your time building and basically learning about venture capital, what were the biggest paradigm shifts or discoveries that you made about capital and how investing works? A lot of them. I mean, the biggest thing is still just a very simple thing that I even tell people when they're trying to start companies is like, keep the main thing, the main thing. There is so much distraction out there and there's people get all wrapped around what does my deck look like and what slide order and all these other things. And yeah, there's good formats you should use when you're going to pitch venture capitalists and there's reasons they want the pitch in a certain way because you're presenting yourself and actually selling yourself and mm -hmm. these kinds of things. But also like get the main message across. And so what is the main message? It's super simple. Early stage technology venture capitalists invest in three things in this order, market, team, and product. Uh, you want a giant market. Why do you want a giant market? And you want a giant growing market. Like they're not going to invest in you to go and try and steal market share from Intel, right? Because it's like very small margins. Not very easy. And you need billions of dollars to build a factory. And yep. it's like, that's not going to happen. So it's got to be big growing markets uh, where there's a lot of disruption happening in the income and it's just going to have their lunch eaten. Number two, you want team. You want an awesome team because if you have a giant growing market and an awesome team, that last piece of product, you might get it right or you might have to pivot it slightly but you can pivot it slightly if you've got a giant market and a good team. But if you don't have a big market or you don't have an awesome team, you're not going to get that last piece right. And actually, that's what happened to us at Okta. We had a giant market that was just starting. We had, of course, I'm awesome. So we had an awesome team. <laughs> also, you could be like McEnroe's like cousin or something like that. I feel like there's some, there's some shades of McEnroe. I met McEnroe when I was five years old there's wow. uh, in London. And... I remember like it was yesterday, we just moved there. We didn't have a house yet. So we were living in some rental apartment. And my dad was like, you got to go outside. You got to go outside in the hallway 
of the apartment complex, like 10th floor, whatever. And I was, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I remember going outside and they were all in town for Wimbledon. And so McEnroe was like playing Wimbledon and like had this apartment. And my dad had somehow figured out that McEnroe was on our floor <laughs> and like knew that McEnroe was coming in and like made me stand there and be like, hi. And like, <laughs> I met John McEnroe, I was five years old. Much later in life, I think in college, I've got some great pictures of me dressed as John McEnroe. Yeah, see, cash. For Halloween, I'll send them to you with like yeah, the headband, the wristband, the whole nine yards. Yeah, totally. And then more recently, I've read his books, which are highly entertaining. Which is, I've heard great things about uh, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, they're, they're good books. I, I recommend you read the books. Uh, yeah, I've heard a couple of different people that were like glowing and uh, about them, but yeah. I'm yeah. Not, a, not so, a sales guy. But. So you're five years old and you're like, I have a proposition for you. I have a tennis racket repair business. No, that's I'm, right. No, no, Were no. you pitching? I'm gonna have one yeah. in nine to 10 years. Would you like to invest now? Exactly. Sadly, I didn't pitch him. He broke a lot of rackets. Just, you, you know, that's just a good, such a missed opportunity. Good addressable market. Someone has his email address, let me know. I'll get in touch with him now. <laughs> we'll get it after a show. Good. We'll let him know about the opportunity. So uh, you're studying venture capital, you're discovering these things and you know there's some type of opportunity in enterprise software. And you yeah. have a great team. We got a great, I mean, I got myself. <laughs> so um, so I looked at a bunch of different things while I was at, I went to graduate school at MIT, uh, which, which was totally transformative in my career. I learned a lot of things. I met some awesome classmates. I got a ton of exposure to different things. Some fantastic professors. The Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship is a phenomenal place for people to go and study. I mean, it's just all, all around, like one of the best decisions I made in my life right after marrying my wife. Sarah, I know you're going to listen to this. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, while I was there, I looked at a whole bunch of businesses. And what I, what I realized was that, you know, software as a service, like everyone sits here in Silicon Valley, even today. So today there's, you know, a trillion dollars of IT spend. $200 billion of that is what we call cloud or whatever. That's AWS, that's Azure, that's Salesforce, that's Workday, that's Okta, that's all these things together. That's still 20%. And this is today in 2019. So people are like, oh, it's cloud, 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 cloud. Guess what? 80 cents of every dollar this year will be spent on legacy software and on-premise infrastructure and servers. Okay, now let's rewind the clock 10 years. Salesforce at the time was a 750 million, maybe billion dollar, I haven't looked, but let's call it billion dollar revenue company, biggest one by far. Add in all the others, okay, let's say it's maybe five, 10, 15, I don't know, 20 billion dollars, maybe on a whatever, $750 billion number. I mean, it was nothing. It was a rounding error. But having, and obviously I drank a lot of Kool-Aid sitting at Salesforce from 2002 to 2007. I you to say something else. That was excellent Kool-Aid. It was very good Kool-Aid. I mean, I, I still feel like I drink it every day. Um, and, and the Kool-Aid was on-premise software, which is what I learned, what I learned to code at Stanford, like doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense for 99% of the use cases. Why is that? Well, we're seeing right now in a podcast studio, there's a table, very nice table, wooden table. Someone makes this wooden table. Their core competency, making this wooden table, not running an exchange server, but they still need email. So like all of these context services, collaboration like email, calendaring, your HR, your finance, your CRM, your all these other things that are not a sustainable competitive differentiator of your business, but that you need to have to run your business, you should not be running. Right. You should subscribe to them online. And now, don't get me wrong, the internet's come a long time. Literally when I wrote my college thesis in computer science, like it was over dial-up. 
you know, okay, very different now, right? Now it's like, why don't I have broadband in the airplane? It's out for 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, I know Louis CK is having problems these days, but he's got a great skit on that. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Not that part, but the uh, everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Uh, yeah, that part's same so idea, great. but yeah. he has this one minute skit on like people just freaking out that the internet's out. And he's like, you realize you're like in a, metal tube going 500 miles an hour in the air and like you don't have email for a minute yeah and i always laugh because that always happens in the airplane people are like will you reset the thing and you're like <laughs> it, it just like you know relax just relax a little bit <laughs> just yeah. relax that being said somehow our internet in silicon valley is not good and i don't understand how that's humanly possible that like if you have uh we have business internet and yeah it's, like uh, business internet and it's freaking horrible or like how is this possible but anyway you guys need to call comcast about that oh i'm, I'm sure they'll get right on it oh, oh we've been, we've been we through have it. had <laughs> we have had that phone call we've had the people up anyways no one wants to listen to that. <laughs> You'll have to cut that part out. There's probably there's probably thousands of people that are listening right now and cheering and say like, "We hate Comcast." Yeah. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, but I know Unless you're trying to get up. Comcast as a big sponsor, so you might want to think about that. I mean, hey, there's, there's a to... lot after dealing with their support team and their business support team for do, you know dozens of different interactions. We've learned a lot about how they can improve. So if anybody's listening in the Comcast marketing department, hit us up. Yeah, we, we got know, we know we how got to ideas, and we need fiber. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> Um, so, so back, yeah, back to, uh, the, the early days and is Okta an idea at this point? Are you, uh, coming up with many different ideas? Are you, how are you going about idea generation? Um, yeah, I was looking, I looked at a whole bunch of things. In fact, I wrote a business plan in the beginning of my second year about a totally different business about PayPal meets mint.com for five to 13 year olds. Hmm. <laughs> so why are you laughing? That's actually a great business. No, People are like, you need to build that today. No, it's just funny because, um, the, uh, like blank plus blank plus blank equals like, I swear this is huge. And it's like, we talked about, uh, I don't know if you ever, this is a total aside, but Clayton Christensen always talks about this idea of like small cars that can't go far, that uh, have like, can't go over speed limit, basically like glorified golf carts. And people were like, that is the dumbest thing ever. Why would anyone want that? And then every parent who has children's children that are between the age of like 12 and 18 are like, oh, I would love for my kid to not be able to go far or fast, but be able to get around to their friend's houses. So there's always there's always this market of like 12 to 17 year olds that like nobody ever cares about because they can't vote. And so I just thought it was Yeah. And people forget that kids, they're, they're actual people too. They have, they have <laughs> needs and yeah. maybe we should teach them personal finance. So there isn't God knows how much student debt. I have a five and a half year old right now. I'm dealing with this big time. <laughs> like about how to manage money, about, you know, how you get money, what income, you know, what interests. I mean, just like I'm dealing with all these problems. Yeah, they're the only human beings in America that are not represented, right? Like that they, they don't have a vote, right? If you're 16, you don't have a say in what happens to you. That's right. So you're But you're if you have a job, around. you still pay taxes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and you can't drink until you're 21, but you can enlist in the armed forces, which is always But at least you can smoke when you enlist in the armed <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you got And now you can that. smoke even more. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, actually I guess not, not technically yet, but so you're kicking around these ideas and you have the PayPal meets Mint. So pay PayPal meets Mint.com for five to 13 year olds. I'm in, I'm in. I just And uh, yeah, if I had the service, I'd use it today. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends had started having kids and were of these ages and were talking to me about it. And uh, I realized it was a huge problem. And uh, then I did a whole bunch of investigation and went and talked to a bunch of people who'd, uh, who'd run different kinds of financial services companies. Jeff Jordan and Andreessen Horowitz, uh, who ran OpenTable and 
my friend Kevin Hartz, uh, who ran Zoom, which was a payment platform. And, and they basically said, yeah, you know, it's really complicated and the regulation's horrible. You're gonna have to file personal income statements in all 50 states as like an example. And I was like, yeah, that sounds terrible. Plus, it's, I think so. I think it was a big market. I think it's still need, but it's not something also I wanted to devote the next 10 years of my life. And so when you're gonna try and build something new and important and lasting, it's gonna take a long time. And you gotta make sure that you really wanna do that. And so I ended up writing the business plan, and then I shelved it. And then I was just looking at other, and I'm an enterprise software guy. I love enterprise software. I think it's awesome. I think it's hugely valuable. I love building relationships with customers or even prospects, partners. Like I love the whole ecosystem. I love finding that win-win for customers when you're actually solving real problems for them, saving them a bunch of money or making them a bunch of money. Like that's a, that's a pretty- It's fun. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty valuable in the, in the economy. My wife, uh, my now wife at the time was my fiance is a doctor. And so she was in residency here in San Francisco. And she's like, that's fine. You can go to MIT. But if you have any plans of marrying me, you're going to be back here all the time. So I was back here every two or three weeks anyway. And uh, I was having lunch with one of the presidents at Salesforce who said, hey, Todd McKinnon, the head of engineering is leaving. You, you should call him. He's thinking about some ideas. So I called Todd and we knew of each other at Salesforce. Um, we'd work on a bunch of projects together. He ran all engineering for all technology at Salesforce from 2003 to 2009. So a fair amount of overlap. We'd worked on a bunch of projects together. Like we did the first M&A of a, of a company, a mobile company, small mobile company together. So we knew of each other and basically we just started dating. And then he gave me a list of references and I was like, that's great. You can call all those people about me too. And then we decided to go into business on uh, May 5th, 2009, Cinco de Mayo. It had nothing to do with actually Cinco de Mayo. It just happened to be the day that I sent him the first financial model because I was still at school. I didn't graduate till June. It was the day I sent him the first, we, we had to go back and like find a date that was the starting date. And so it was like, okay, well, the day I sent you the first financial model that we agreed seemed like a good basis. That was a good, and that it turned out I sent that email on May 5th. What was your first date? <laughs> Our first date was at a coffee shop in uh, Knob Hill. Uh, was it Knob Hill? No, Russian Hill. I think it was one of those really cool French ones. I think it was La Boulange that then got bought by oh, Starbucks yeah. and yeah. got Starbucks sized oh, yeah. or whatever. And we had a bunch of dates there actually. Chad and I met at Whole Foods. That's nice. <laughs> like shopping at Whole Foods? No, at the like little part where uh, you can eat food. Which eat, Whole Foods? Uh, which, Rebus City? Almeida? Uh, yeah, I think it's out. The, no, Santa Clara one. Yeah, yeah, Santa, yeah, Santa Clara. Yeah. No, we were actually just shopping in the aisle. It was like, <laughs> well, that's hey, why I was like, I was like this gentleman looks well put together. Like you look trustworthy. Yeah, you are also buying Brussels sprouts that are not yet ripe. <laughs> we should talk. Chad makes ridiculously good Brussels sprouts. So funny you should say that. I see that in mind. Corner cut, you know, a little olive oil. Trying to keep the cooking uh, cooking game up. So, so you're talking, you're, you're thinking about things with your co-founder, getting ready to wrap up things in business school. What were you thinking about getting your first customer or an investment? What was the the game plan there? The game plan was, first you're trying to figure out the right idea. So uh, he had, we, I mean, we're both enterprise software guys. We're both infrastructure technology guys. So he had some ideas that were a little bit different than what we ended up actually doing, but they were good enough and he had drawings. And so we went and we, uh, we used Steve Blank, mm -hmm. wrote a book called The Four Steps to the Epiphany. Oh yeah. I don't think it's a particularly well-written book. There's a bunch of like, grammatical errors in it and 
you can read it in about three hours. That's all the upside. The value in it is basically he's, it's a very good reminder for many technologists and they should all read it because then the bottom line is you need to get out of the office. You can't sit in an ivory tower, especially if you're building things for the enterprise. You cannot sit in an ivory tower and just like create a bunch of stuff and then be like, here it is, voila, like that doesn't work. So we followed that principle and basically went out and I had a pipeline of, or actually I had a quota of like 15 or 18 net new directors of IT, VPs of IT, CIOs, like very rarely CIOs that I could get to. Mm -hmm. So it was basically managers of IT, directors of IT, where we would talk to them, show them what we had, ask them if it was valuable, ask them if they would pay for it and just like start the cycle going. And I still have those sheets from like July, August, September, October, November, 2009, where they're color coded of like how many meetings I made and like what ended up happening. And it was just a tremendous amount. And, you know, at first you're showing them drawings and then you're showing them a little PowerPoint and then it's a little bit of code. Then it's a little more code. Then it's something that actually works. And it was just very, very valuable to get that insight. Now it turned out in the long run that some of that was valuable. Some of that we probably over-rotated on, but regardless, that was kind of our approach to getting out there. And then, yeah, over the summer we, we raised, I'd done a good job as a venture capitalist over the summer between my two years at MIT. I found a deal, it became competitive. The venture fund I was working at, Hummer Winblad Venture Partners, put down a term sheet, so did a bunch of others, and then someone else funded the company. So instantly all these venture capitalists called me and were basically like, don't go back to school. We'll give you a job, blah, blah. Why would you go back to school? And I was like, no, my, my, my point was at this point in my career not to become a venture capitalist, there's a bunch of things I still want to do. I want to build companies. I like selling things. I like building teams, just a bunch of things that are not innate in the venture capital model that, you know, and I was like 31, 30. I was like, I got a lot of things to do. Getting um, people to say yes is a lot more fun than uh, telling a lot of people no. Well, that's assuming you can actually get them to say yes. Before they say yes, a lot of people are telling <laughs> you no. Yeah. So actually I would rather tell a bunch of people no than be told no over and over. But we can probably take that one offline. <laughs> yeah, I, really? I mean, as a, I mean, you think that I it's mean, a lot easier. It's a lot more fun to be like, no, 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 than here. Seriously. No, no, no. Especially when it's like, I got to hit payroll. We're gonna run out of money. My wife's like, what are you doing? Go get a job. I mean, you know, let's talk about <laughs> oh, what's I'm, really I'm, going on. I'm, I'm with you on that part of it. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think the building aspect though is the, uh, is the fun part. But yeah, anyways, I digress. Completely. Yeah. So. Um, so this deal became competitive. And so a bunch of venture capitalists called me and said, hey, come see me before you go back to school. You shouldn't go back to school. We'll give you a job. You can work here. And I said, hey, that's great. Uh, much appreciated, but I'm actually going to go finish my... And actually a couple of people were like pretty aggressive about it. We're like, that's a mistake. I'm like, well, I, I appreciate that, but... Which but is a great what, sign too, by the way, when somebody cares enough to say what you're doing is wrong. I think yeah. a lot of people get offended by that. That's uh, when people take the risk to offend you with their opinion. I, what, do you, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? When people take the risk... Well, when they say something, I think that, it depends a lot on what you think of the person. Right. Like, do they have enough context to give an honest Do they have enough context? And, yeah. Do they have enough expertise? Do they have enough experience? Do they have enough of a purview? Do sure. they have all those other things? If the answer is yes, great. Yeah. And I'm probably doing something right. But if not, it's easy to discount too. Sure. Like a lot of people just like talking out of left field to like talk. Yeah. You can figure those guys out pretty quickly too. And so- what happened though, as a result was when we came back with this business nine months later, I knew all these venture capitalists. So we called them all and we went and pitched them and they all said, no, they're all like, yeah, this is never going to happen. Identity in the clouds is a terrible idea. 
Uh, we ended up raising a million dollars seed round that summer, uh, summer of 2009. Half of it was friends and family. The other half was a check from Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz, who had just started Andreessen Horowitz. So I think, yeah, the check was actually the first check out of their first fund ever. Wow. It was a seed round. And we said, hey, you know, this is going to take us a year. This is what we're going to do over a year. We're going to build this product. We're going to hire this team. We're going to sell this set of customers. Give us a year for a million bucks. Uh, people were like, okay, sounds good. And then one thing that I saw that happens a lot in venture capital is entrepreneurs are very eager and, and rightfully so. I understand they're excited there. But you got to remember as an entrepreneur to underpromise and overdeliver. It's always going to work out better for you. Like don't put up that giant number that you think you might be able to possibly attain if the stars align. Because if one of the stars doesn't align and you miss it, you can be in trouble. So like pick, and by the way, the other tip is everything takes twice as long, costs twice as much. Okay, so if you think it costs a million bucks, takes six months, guess what? It's gonna cost you 2 million, takes 12 months, every time. Anyway, so in this case, we said this is gonna take us a year. Turned out we did it a lot faster. And so we saw Mark and Ben uh, right around Christmas time, 2009. They're like, hey, come back in, give us an update. And we did that. And we started with the slide that says, this is what we told you. It was gonna take us a year to do. We did it all in six months. And then within 30 days, we'd close the Series A $10 million financing round led by Andreessen Horowitz. Ben Horowitz joined our board, which he's still on today. And then it was off to the races. How do you so, getting the investment and you know a Series A and such an experienced board member in the enterprise space? Was that like a dream come true for the company or was that just like a necessary partnership? Because I feel like mentorship like that is is vital, right? If, if you're going to take business seriously and have a shot at getting to an IPO or beyond, do you need that? Is that necessary? So are you asking the Frederick <laughs> in 2019 or the Frederick Both. in 2010? Both. Yeah. Well, the Frederick. And I mean, well, and, and how many people were like, Andres, what? what? Yeah. Or they're <laughs> so, like, is that the Nes Netscape guy? Yeah, that's totally true. So they were just starting. They were just getting going. So, but Ben um, had already sold ops. I mean, he, he'd they, exited they, ops. He, he, did, he did exit. That's yeah. why they started it. But they still were not the Andres and Horowitz, you know, 10 sure, years later. Sure. Yeah. Um, we did have a couple other term sheets from some, you know, more established or well-known or whatever, but the alignment was very good with them and they were entrepreneurs and they were backing entrepreneurs and we were technologists, entrepreneurs. I mean, we had a little bit of business, but so it was like a good alignment. Uh, and also they'd been rolling to take a bet on us and write us a check in the seed round when everyone else was like, no, go pound sand. So yeah, that, that says a lot, right? And so uh, that was pretty straightforward. We went through some tough times. 2010 was a building year. I mean, this is a recession. You got to remember, it's like things are not good out there. Mm -hmm. So, which is actually a very good time to start a company in hindsight, because you need two years to build infrastructure, three years to build a security infrastructure layer anyway. So that's fine because no one's buying anything. So you got to build it. But we did not follow the lesson that I just talked about of under promising and over delivering. So because I learned that lesson as a result of those things. So um, <laughs> in 2010, 2011, we just started missing our sales goals. You know, the projections were up and to the right and the actual traction was like flatline. And um, 2011 was a super brutal year. We ended up raising a series B by the skin of our teeth. Anil Bushri from Greylock joined the board. And it was not a happy year for me. I got thrown out of two board meetings in a row just because we couldn't agree on like the strategy and like they wanted us to pivot to more enterprise software sales as opposed to SMB software sales where we were comfortable. It turned out they were right. 
but I didn't know any better. And when this is all you've been doing for 24 months, day in, day out, you know, seven days a week, you're like, hell no. Mm. So is um, it your number? I mean, are you selling? How many salespeople do you have? At the end, uh, like 2011, we probably had like five, seven salespeople, but they weren't doing, I mean, they weren't doing amazingly well. And you were just managing the team, right? Uh, I think we had our first head of sales, professional head of sales. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it was founder-led sales. I mean, I think I did the first 10 or 20 deals or something like that. And yeah, I mean, it was tough going. And then in early 2012, things turned around. We hired our first formal head of engineering because Todd was the head of engineering up till then too. And our first formal vice president of sales or senior vice president of sales. We had a vice president of sales, but like a real chief revenue officer is what they call them today, but they didn't really have that nomenclature back then in early 2012. And that really turned the company around. And so then from, from then it was really off to the races. That went very well. 2012 was a good year. We raised a series C from Sequoia and then we were, we were rolling. So that series CE, a lot of that mentorship and those learning experiences, did that help give you escape velocity to eventually get to the IPO? If you look back at the journey, are there any like, you know, one to two inflection points that really stand out in your mind where you made decisions that led to the IPO? I think that's the biggest one by far was making sure you had product market fit. And we did not have product market fit we were trying to jam a product that was really more of a mid-market enterprise focused product. Didn't yet necessarily have all the feature set that we needed to sell, but we were trying to sell product really focused on mid-market enterprise type problems to an SMB market. And there's a bunch of problems with that. First of all, they don't have as much pain. Second of all, they don't have as much cash. Third of all, SMB flips over much more quickly. So there's a whole bunch of reasons. Sure. But that was like the big inflection point without a doubt. It was like H2 2011. And like same amount of time per se. I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but like a lot of times that's another big reason is that it takes the same amount of time to close like one of those like bigger SMBs as an enterprise sale in terms of deal size. Like maybe it's, you know, six months versus eight months, but you're like for, you know, three times the price or something. Wow, there's like all sorts of things in there we can unpack. Well, yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, well, the, another way to put it is, you know, you close one deal for $5 million a year or you close whatever, you know, 500 deals at 10K a year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was my math right? I think so. Anyway, right. So sure. it, it, that's pretty clear. Now, people were not, we, uh, you know, the product platform 2012, 2013, we were not doing any $5 million deals. I know, but we were getting into like, $50,000, a year, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, we we're starting to make our way slowly into the mid-market. Wasn't even enterprise, you know, got maybe our first like bleeding edge enterprise customers, 2014, 2015, 2016. They had a bunch of pain getting on the service, you know, totally. I mean, these, yeah. but we've been fortunate. I mean, we've had like these three, you know, mega waves that we've ridden over the last decade of cloud. I mean, just everyone's using software as a service in the enterprise digital transformation. I mean, every company needs to become a technology company. So they got to figure out a better way to interact with their customers, their their partners, their vendors, their suppliers. And if they don't, by the way, their competition is going to eat their lunch. And then security, right? Now, I mean, everyone's petrified of the next breach, the next whatever. And now we have a whole set of security products that are really helpful. So you look at those three trends, you know, that's why we talked about at the beginning, 70% market, 20% team, 10% product. Those are three giant trends that are just getting going and that are going to keep accelerating. So we're all... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I just want to add one thing to that because we have a IT focused podcast, so I feel like this is this is fun for uh, a quick thing, so the listeners know. The other thing too is like who you're selling to. This idea of a CIO, 
there's a huge change over the last 10 years of like what this person does and like the CIO, CTO, the technologist, the, you know, chief information officer, that person's entire role has changed like dramatically, almost like 80% shift in like responsibilities, especially for the best one. Like how did who you're selling to determine a lot of that as well? Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, they've gone from this, the role of CIO is like, might be the most exciting role today mm-hmm. in yep. technology. And by the way, the future CEO in 20 years did not come up through sales. They came up through technology, Yep, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it used to be a back office function, basically like, why is my email not working? You get a phone call when the email's not working from like the CEO being like, you better fix my email, or you're gonna get fired. To now it's like every major project, what's the technology angle on that? And how is the CIO accelerating all that? So first of all, that's changed dramatically. CIO is still our number one buyer. Number two, there's brand new titles. Chief digital officer, that thing didn't exist three years ago. Started popping up. We've got some great customers. You know, MGM is a good example. JetBlue is a good example where they have a person whose job is chief digital officer. And it's a customer identity and access management focused thing where I got to make it super easy and secure for my customers to get access to things, to accelerate. That's about accelerating the business. Traditional IT is about reducing cost, maybe keeping it safe. Now it's really about, wow, IT can accelerate the business and how can I do that? The other title that's showed up is chief security officer, which like barely existed 10 years ago. If it did, it was like badges to the building, maybe. You know, RSA tokens to your VPN, maybe. Now it's like totally strategic. I bet 20, 30% of our buyers are CISOs, especially at the largest companies in the world because they have a critical role at the table. They're responsible to the board. People like to say they have unlimited budget. I don't think that's true, but they have large budgets that are always growing. And like, you know, no one can afford the type of impact to the brand Mm. that a breach is going to, I mean, you know, breach at a major retailer or something, that's like quarter billion dollars, half a billion dollars. People get fired. It's like, see you later, CEO. I mean, like everybody gets fired. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, not to mention what happens dramatically when it happens at a major credit agency like it did in America, right? So, I mean, these are like major events now, which I think is totally exciting if you're a, a technologist in the enterprise and think about the, you, you have, not only are you getting a seat at the table, you're getting like a major seat at the table. I mean, these are like board level conversations. I mean, at our company, we give the board an update on security at least once a year, just like it's good governance and they want to make sure. And then they have a meeting. The board has a meeting with the CSO without the CEO in the room. And I know cause I'm on the board of my company too, saying, Hey, Mr. And Mrs. Chief security officer, are you getting what you need from the CEO to make sure like, do you have the resources? Do you have the people? Like, what are the problems? Tell us about them. And we'll make sure that we can help you out there. Because I mean, it's so critical these days. Yeah, founder lesson there is that when you start a company, if your product goes really well, people get promoted. And if it doesn't work, they get fired. It's usually a good place to build a product around when people are creating titles around what your product does. There's a lot of excitement in your voice because that is a major challenge that Okta is helping solve. You're yeah. basically you know, preventing horrible things from happening. And we hope so. Knock on wood. There's a wooden table in front of me. Absolutely. <laughs> what else, either in business or your personal life, are you most excited about right now? Because like running a you know a company, co-founding a company, building Okta from idea to IPO is not easy. Truly zero to IPO. Seriously. And you, you subtle plug there. Check out the <laughs> podcast. So, you know, you, you've done that successfully. Not easy to do. And what along the way has given you energy to keep going? That's a good question. So yeah, I'd like to talk about zero at IPO because I think it's actually very important. Uh, I've been saving that joke for, for a while. <laughs> you crushed it. Yeah. So the lead up was perfect. Uh, we could talk about that. I just like, uh, you know, I think entrepreneurship is great. 
I think it's a great motor for the economy. It's the best sport, right? Well, actually, I play ice hockey, so I think oh, that's okay, the best sport. <laughs> that's right. I'll be honest uh, with you. San, San Jose Sharks all the way, right? San Jose Sharks. Okay. Well, I grew up a Ranger fan, but I even prefer playing than watching on TV. Fair anyway, enough. I'm hoping my son gets into it. They were <laughs> years years from now when he listens to this podcast. I hope it worked out, Nico. <laughs> um, so uh, I think entrepreneurship is just a great. It's a great engine for the economy. You think about what the, you know, the quote unquote American dream is like to have a chance to build something, mm -hmm. right? It's to come here. It's like my dad showed up with a, with a suitcase in 1974, didn't speak the language. And like what he's built, he's built a phenomenal career. He's been a six time public company CFO. You know, that's, that's what's like the beautiful fabric of not just capitalism. I know there's all sorts of problems with capitalism that we could talk about too, but of like what's happening in these kinds of economies. And if you think about like, what's going to bring the middle class up and so forth, it's like, new innovation and new technology. And I love the government, but it's not coming from the government. So where is it going to come from? It's going to come from the private sector. And I think it's not great, just, not only great for the economy, it's great for people, mm -hmm. right? People can build careers. I mean, one of the things that I'm most excited about, frankly, is, you know, we have over 1,500 employees at Okta. It's a great team to work with, but we've created jobs, we've created industry, we've created economy, we've helped these companies solve these problems. Like those are fun things to do. The IPO actually was a little bit of a letdown for me in a weird way because it was this goal that we had and that we created because you need, you want to build a large independent public software company. So public's a key part of that. So you need to get to the IPO, but it's not like an, it, and it's a great event, but it's kind of like your wedding. You barely remember it. I mean, the, what I remember, first of all, because you just came from- Don't tell your wife that. <laughs> well, my wife knows because I've told her before. Uh, what you, you know, you just came from a two week roadshow where you went to, I don't know how many countries, how many cities and saw how many investors and like, you don't know what day it is. So you're exhausted. Number two, the whole thing goes by super quick and there's a lot of energy around it, a lot of excitement around it. Number three, we like then rushed home to get back to San Francisco that night to have a party actually with all of our employees because it's a party for the employees, not just for like the, the executives who go to the thing. So I basically remember the pictures of it, but I remember the following Monday being like, okay, that was sweet, but like, we got to get back to work. Like we got a lot, a lot of things to do. So the IPO was a good event, but it's just, uh, we, Todd had a very good, my co-founder, Todd McKinnon, came up with a very good term for this, which is uh, we want to think about it as high school graduation. Super important. Everyone needs to go through it. You don't want to be the guy or gal who peaked in high school. You might know those people, nothing wrong with them, but like, there's a lot more to do after high school. So it's a rite of passage. We're super excited about it. But when you're trying to build a long-term independent public software company and solve major problems, like we think we are helping our customers do, like we're just getting started. I mean, by far our brightest days are ahead of us. And like the next 10 years are gonna be way more exciting than the last 10. So I feel like we've done a lot of the hard work to get the engine going. Momentum is super hard to get going. But now I'm not gonna say it's the ball rolling down the hill, but it's certainly like, I'm not pushing it as steep an angle up the hill as I was before on a daily basis, uh, which is great. Was it Sergey that didn't go to the Google IPO? Was that yeah? The story? That's that's what Marissa said. He yeah, didn't yeah, go. Mer he was just uh, hanging out with the engineers during the IPO. Didn't attend. Yeah, he didn't yeah, attend the Google it. IPO. Wow, that's but, his call. Yeah. <laughs> so let's jump Na in. Nasdaq. We went public on Nasdaq, which is a, a fantastic organization. It's a great market. Also, a customer of ours. So we were actually hosted by the CIO of Nasdaq, who is a customer of ours. My friend Brad Peterson at the IPO. I mean, it was awesome. It was that's great. so sweet. It's really cool. Yeah. So. At the end of every interview where we're wrapping up, we like to do a series of uh, rapid fire questions. 
Before we get into that, can I talk real quick about Zero IPO? I was going to give oh. you a chance to plug it in the lightning oh. round. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. I would not I would not forget. I just want to give the background on what it is and why we're yeah, doing it. Yeah, sure. So let's start out. Uh, favorite podcast. Oh, well, it's got it. Well, no, that's not true, though. Cause <laughs> I, can I say my favorite my podcast? My favorite podcast is actually the Hockey News. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's a Canadian podcast because, of course, Canada is the only company. But tell us about Zero IPO. Zero to IPO, it's it's a podcast that I am co-hosting with my friend Josh Davis, who is one of the co-founders of Epic Magazine and contributing editor at Wired. It's a 12-episode first season that we're doing right now. We're right in the middle of it. It's really focused on, over the last couple of years, as you know, we've been very, very fortunate at Okta and things have gone well, I've tried to give back more to a lot of the entrepreneurs behind us. I got a lot of help from the entrepreneurs ahead of me who helped me and gave me advice and guidance and I want to do the same thing, you know, and kind of pay it for it. And I heard a lot of people saying, hey, man, it's super hard and it feels like I'm the only one. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, you know, you go to any of these events and you talk to other entrepreneur founders and everyone's crushing it. How are you doing? Oh, I'm crushing it. Everyone's crushing it all the time, except you. And then you go back to your office by yourself. And you're like, oh, man, everyone's crushing it except me. It could be a very lonely place. I remember it was lonely for me. And so, you know, what happens is I took a step back and I looked at this and basically in the media, there's a giant barbell effect, P- the media, which I understand why media has to tell good stories. They want to sell stories. Do two stories or barbell, either massive successes, your friends, Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison or Mark Benioff or whatever the case is, or the massive failures. Companies raised a billion dollars, went bankrupt, there was fraud, whatever the case is, because those are the stories. That's not what happens to most entrepreneurs most of the right. time. And no one is telling them, hey, guess what? Even those people who are massively successful, they went through all these challenges. And so I started writing a couple of blog posts and then someone asked me to do a recording and then I don't know how it happened. Next thing, we have a 12 episode season. It's called Zero to IPO. And it goes through each of the stages of what happens from Zero to IPO and beyond. But it's told, I interviewed over 15 successful entrepreneurs, uh, public company executives, largely enterprise, but some consumer as well, all technology. And we have them tell the stories of like when they totally missed their hiring number, when culture was falling apart, when they had a giant oh shit moment, when they were missing their forecasts, when all of a sudden they have more people in their company than they even know who they are. Like, how do you manage all those things just so that entrepreneurs at home can hear this and be like, okay, I'm not sitting there by myself. And by the way, I get to participate, which is awesome because I can tell all these stories. It's kind of like a therapy session for myself, but uh, it's been great. We've gotten great feedback and it's become a lot more than I thought, but it's been a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Everybody listening, go check it out. Yeah. And I just wanted to add one thing on there that I think that people especially in this and I love the podcast and I think it's a, a brilliant way to look at this stuff because I think people a lot of times don't realize how many false summits there are. And that's what's so brilliant about this type of storytelling in your podcast is that like there's so many moments where you're like, oh, I finally escaped this thing. And, you know, whether it's gosh, what's the what's the pit of chaos? God, what the hell am I? Dark Knight of the Soul no, or, on the hero's no, journey or no, uh, what's his name? The guy um, who wrote the book about this chasm crossing the chasm. Oh yeah. Um, whether it's like Jeffrey crossing Miller. the chasm, you're like, Oh, f- we finally crossed the chasm. And that's like, no, you have like three more chasms to go. It's funny that you say that Sebastian Thrun, who yeah. was one of the guys who started Google X, he was a professor here at Stanford. He is now the CEO, I think Kitty Hawk right now. He found Audacity, Audacity as well. He is uh, a friend of mine and Josh's and he came on the show and he was talking about exactly that false summits. He's like, it happens all the time. And you just have to realize that it's like, okay, well, we got to get back and we got to get excited. And here we got to do it again. Here's what happens next. And that's part of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Like, I mean, we could have died 10 times. And now it's like, you know, we're very fortunate. Business is going well. We think there's a huge opportunity. But like, 
it was not easy. I like to tell people I was much taller and better looking before we started. <laughs> and you guys, I mean, I'm pretty tall and good looking. Yeah, it's oh, true. I mean, absolutely. I was uh, kind of like John. I couldn't even, couldn't even speak at first when we first, uh, first met. I'm staring so, up oh, at you. Lost for words. So let's jump back in the lightning round. What is the best fiction and nonfiction book that you've read in the last couple of years? Or do you uh, not read fiction? Uh, I do not read fiction. Okay. At, at all? Or at any, all. Are colleagues right, trying to push sci-fi on you? or Because I mean, in tech, there's a lot of I sci-fi. Read, I have not groups. read a fiction book in, I cannot remember the last fiction book I read. My, my wife reads them all the time. I only read basically historical nonfiction. Okay. It's cool. basically, it. uh, there's a li- some, some ch- right now I'm reading uh, How to Change Your Mind which I think is, is a great Michael book. Michael Poland? Yeah, no, exactly. Poland, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so that's probably the exception because that's not historical fiction. That's like, uh, sorry, that's not historical nonfiction. It's just nonfiction. Sure. But generally it's historical nonfiction. So uh, about John McEnroe, Sean Avery, who is a hockey player, just wrote this unbelievable tell-all book. It's called Ice Capades. It's highly entertaining if you're a hockey player. I've read uh, recently about the history of money, because you know blockchain is all well sure. there's a whole reasons that like currency is what it is and and they used to be like local banks and you know all sorts of different things awesome and uh, as far as your phone goes what's the relationship with like with your phone do you have favorite apps on your home screen do you use a lot do you try to limit screen time how do you think about using your device i use my phone during the day when i get home i put it down until my kids go to bed and then i pick it up again i try to barely use it on the weekend and i make it very clear to my kids that they are more important than a piece of plastic that i'm staring at so that's number one love it number two i learned actually from a bunch of the entrepreneurs ahead of me who has very good advice carl eschenbach from sequoia capital one in particular said when you're walking around your office don't be on your phone like put it in your pocket what are you doing usually you're going to the bathroom you're going to the kitchen you're going to a meeting put your phone in your pocket and look around at people and say hello hi how's it going and you realize that in, in high growth environments, there's new employees all the time. They don't know who you are. And so just like engaging with them and making sure that they realize just, you know, they're more important than a piece of plastic standing in front of my hand too. And it's like, what are you really getting done in those micro micro right. moments? Like nothing. Yeah. Those are, those are the main things. Main apps I use, I'm old. I'm over 40. Email, calendar, Evernote are probably the ones I use the most. Awesome. And as far as advice goes, do you have any general advice for all of our listeners out there that maybe they're not really excited or passionate about business? Do you have any advice for them to become passionate about entrepreneurship or maybe uh, what they should be thinking about or viewing entrepreneurship in a new way or, some, or something along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the same way that I did not start that paypalmeansmint.com for five to 13 year olds, you got to find something you're super passionate about. So, and whatever that is, there is massive change that's going to be happening. I mean, there is more technology change that's going to happen in the next 20 years than has happened in a long, long time. And this is only accelerating. So certainly the change we're going to see in our lifetime is monumental. And by the way, the generation of our grandparents right now, I mean, remember, they were born like without cars. So that's a lot of change. This is just going to get way faster. So think about like what that center of gravity is that you love. Things that you can't, you know, you and I were talking earlier, right before we started the podcast, you're like storytelling. Mm-hmm. Well, you made it into a whole thing. You think about where that energy is, where you want to spend your time, how you want to spend your effort, your energy, spend time there, and then think about like technology. And think about, you don't want, if, it, if there's 10 articles on wire.com already about this, like you're too late, but have an idea on, here's my thesis on where my passion is going to intersect with technology three or five years from now and start thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And you're going to end up doing something you love to do. You're going to be right in the middle of a whole bunch of things that are going on. You're going to be very educated about it. 
And even if, look, starting a company is very, very hard. It's not for everyone. There's a lot of like young companies who need awesome people to join them too. Even today, we have 1,500 people. I only want builders. Mm. I do not want people who are going to show up and like ride the rocket ship. That's not interesting. I got too many things to do. So I want entrepreneurs in my company today. Sure. So, you know, people got to remember that. It's not just like either you start it or you don't. Everyone needs your help. Wise words. So everybody get involved where you can. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.